Father, we need you this morning. We need you every morning, every moment of every day. Lord, I pray as we continue in our series and we look at this story of David and Saul, you would help speak to our hearts and our minds this morning. Help us see the things that you want us to see, convict us of the things you want to convict us of. God, you're so good and so kind in your pursuit of us. Help us see that even if it doesn't always make sense for us. So, Father, would you give us eyes to see this morning, ears to hear, and hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would do it this morning. We pray that you would do it this morning. Meet us in our time. We ask it in your name. Well, my wife and I had some friends in town. Sorry, I'm a little emotional this morning, man. That song got me. Um, my wife and I had some friends in town this summer uh, that maybe some of you met. They came to church. They were here with us for about three weeks. They're from Miami, Florida. And while they were there with us, they were living in our house. And um, the four adults, we were sitting there and we were on the couch watching Netflix. And we're kind of scrolling through and this new show popped up on our feed kind of like as a preview. And so we watched the preview, and it got us super curious. My friends, again, um, are from Miami. Uh, they didn't grow up in this side of the country, and my wife and I did grow up here. And so uh, we have relationships, had and still have relationships with people that are of the Mormon faith. And so we've been around Mormons for a while. Um, my friends had not. And they saw this show, this Netflix show that came out called uh, Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. And it's a, a, um, a, docu a documentary about really the fundamentalist Mormon movement, uh, and specifically centered around Warren Jeffs about 20, 25 years ago, uh, some of the things that made national headlines. Now, um, my Mormon friends don't ascribe to the fundamentalist Mormon movement and what they're about, um, but we ended up watching the first episode, um, and then we kept watching because we were curious about like, what is gonna happen? We weren't familiar with the story, uh, but as we watched, it got darker and darker in the midst of this movement and what was going on and the abuse of women specifically and young girls specifically, after we watched it, we were like, why did we watch this? This is like terrible. And it actually happened. Uh, if you're not familiar, you know, Warren Jeffs in kind of the fundamentalist Latter-day Saints movement FLDS um, had this compound and uh, really groomed young girls and young women. Uh, he had 78 wives and it's just, it's disturbing at a level that I don't want to talk about here. But why do we continue to watch it? And these true crime dramas that are kind of out that people are kind of attached to and they kind of watch or whether it's a podcast that seems to be uh, popular really in the last decade, they've been rising. And a national newspaper wrote on this kind of genre just recently, let me read it to you uh, briefly what they're talking about. It says, as a nation, We've long been fascinated by crime stories. While a good murder mystery always makes for gripping TV, nothing gets our attention more than the events that have played out in real life. Over the past few years, the crime, true crime genre has exploded from podcasts to documentaries, examining past cases in forensic details to books to notorious murders and television dramas that bring to life the stories behind these gruesome headlines. We seemingly cannot get enough of true crime goes on to say, but what's driving this obsession? Why do we love to devour stories about the darkest of human behaviors? 
For psychologist Meg Aroll, the darkness of the subject matter is what makes true crime stories so compelling. And then it quotes her, it says, she says this, as humans, we want to understand the darker side of our nature, she says. The true crime stories allow us to explore it in a safe way from a safe distance. I thought that was interesting, that article, and kind of, again, the, the rise of this genre and why we seem to be attracted to it. Now, we won't tell each other that because we're in church, right, and all the things, but we, we're watching it. Um, and how we're fascinated with the exact same question. The question of how does one become a monster? Like, how does that happen? How does Warren Jeffs get to the place at the end of the series when he's doing unspeakable things? How does that happen? We're curious about that. And what we're going to see in our series as we uh, continue to follow along this series called We Want a King, as we've been looking at the rise and fall of three kings in the Old Testament, the first three kings of the history of Israel, of, of Saul and now David and then Solomon. And what we've seen is as David starts to rise in the last two weeks, in the last two chapters, we're going to start to see Saul continue into descent. And you saw the text that we read this morning in chapter 22, where Saul does these unspeakable things. And so for us to ask the question of like, how did he get to that level and realize that it's a step-by-step process? And how do we need to be warned of that? And so what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at our text, the several chapters in it, and kind of pocket it like we're looking at a true crime miniseries. And the miniseries, we're going to call it The Making of a Monster. The Making of a Monster. And what we'll do is we'll peek at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. We left off our story in chapter 17 last week with David and Goliath. We'll peek at some, some context as kind of a pilot to this miniseries in chapter 18. Then we're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 19 kind of unpacking it. We'll sum up chapters 20 and 21, and then we'll see our season finale in chapter 22, The Making of a Monster. So if we had a pilot of this mini-series of this true crime drama with King Saul, here's what we would see in the pilot. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let's look at verse 6. This is what this says, starting in verse 6 of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that's Goliath, the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands? And to me they have ascribed thousands? And what more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9, and Saul eyed David from that day on. What we see in this turn of the corner is David's star is rising and, and, and Saul's is descending. He starts to feel jealous. And in the next scene, what we see is that when David is comforting Saul, he grabs his spear and he throws it to kill David. David eludes it. And Saul is continuing to go after David to eliminate him. And in the middle of chapter 18, he gives his uh, daughter Michael to David to be married. But in verse 21, the reason he gives Michael to David is it says, man, I, I hope she's a snare to him. Like she could take him down in some type of way. And that doesn't happen. 
David continues in chapter 18 to have success both relationally and physically. He has success relationally because the text says that Michael actually loves him. She loves David. She wants the best for David. And David continues to go out and fight these battles and continue to win. And what does it do to Saul? It drives him crazy. Drives him mad. What happens is Saul has this desire to continue to hold on to power. He has a desire for jealousy and envy and power, and it takes root in Saul's heart. That's the pilot stepping into this miniseries, The Making of a Monster, episode one, chapter 19, starting in verse one. It says, and Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, but because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? Verse 6, and Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence before. What we see in episode one of those seven verses, that you become closer to becoming a monster when you reject wisdom. When you reject wisdom. Now, you might read this uh, on the surface and go, well, actually, no, he listened to wisdom. It said he listened to Jonathan. He said, yeah, I'm not going to kill David. That's not going to happen. But what you see in the next line is that Saul is not telling the truth because he goes after David to kill him again right after this scene. So he's telling Jonathan, his son, like he's giving him the answer that he wants to hear, but he doesn't have any intention of keeping his word. He's rejecting the wisdom of his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan provides wisdom again to his father. He's saying, listen, let me help you see clearly. There's no reason you should be going after David. He rescued you. He's for you. He's good. And Saul doesn't see it. Saul doesn't see clearly because he sees David as a threat. And he wants to eliminate the threat. But Jonathan does see clearly. It says he delights in his relationship with David. They have a trust built. They have a bond built as friends. And he's looking out for him. Which is interesting because if anybody should be jealous of David, it should be Jonathan. Jonathan ought to be the next person to be the king. But instead, he's realizing what's best for the kingdom, what's best for God. And he sides with David in his loyalty. And again, Saul hasn't been paying attention maybe to his envy or his jealousy that's taken root as a seed and it starts to grow into this action. It's Saul's desire to sin that has moved deeper into a decision to sin as he seeks to kill David and he rejects the wisdom of his son. I think it's worth asking for us to go like, what harmless thing in your life uh, maybe has taken root 
It's a small scene. You don't think it's a big deal, just like Saul. Didn't think his jealousy was a big deal. It's not that big of a problem. And because it's taking root in your life, you all of a sudden are rejecting the wisdom of other people. I have a friend that grew up with his dad, was in the banking industry his whole life. And uh, as a good dad, he's trying to help his son understand how to handle finances. And he kept telling his son, like, listen, when you turn 18, don't get a credit card. Like, it's going to ruin you. It's not helpful. Like, don't do it. So, of course, what did my friend do when he turned 18? Got a credit card, right? Got a credit card, and he's like, this thing is awesome. What is my dad talking about? I just swipe something, and I don't have to pay for it, and I just get it right away? This is amazing. He continues to swipe this card, swipe this card, and it maxes out. What does he do when he maxes out? Does he go back to his dad and go, Dad, you're right. Like, I, I blew it. No, he gets a second credit card. Of course, seems to be the case. He gets a second. He maxes out. He gets a third credit card. Maxes out the third credit card. And the way he tells it, what was driving his obsession to swipe that card is he, at the time, was working at a salon in Scottsdale, high-end fashion, and everything was about image. It's about the clothes you wore and the, and the shoes and the hair you had. And he got kind of caught up in this kind of undercurrent of this is what's most important. Well, how do I continue to stay up with these trends? I take my credit card and I swipe it. He was obsessed with his image, which led him to reject the wisdom of his father. What are the small things that you might be obsessing over that's causing you to reject the wisdom of people that love you? Because people want to speak into some of the things they see. And again, the making of a monster is you're slowly moving, just like Saul, you're moving towards this way of rejecting the wisdom of others because you're obsessed about something that you don't think is that big of a deal. It's helpful for us to see that. What are the small things that may grow into obsession? The small things that may, you don't think are that big of a deal, man. Maybe it's just a little white lie you're telling. It's just consistent and, well, I don't need to tell the full truth. Maybe you're scrolling on your phone late at night and you're, you're not looking at hardcore pornography, but you're looking at things that are taking you somewhere that are not helpful and you're thinking, well, they're just small things. They're not that big a deal. Maybe it's envy like Saul. Maybe somebody else got the job you wanted. And you're just envious of that person. You wouldn't outright say, like, I hope they get fired or I hope they screw up. But, like, in your heart, you're going, like, I, I should be in that position. I should be in that job. And you don't think it's really a big deal. You're going, well, I'll, I'll, I'll fix it up. I'll clean it up. It'll, I'll do better next time. And you've got friends around you trying to give you wisdom on what you should or shouldn't do. And you're kind of just keeping them at arm's length. We have to be careful the things that grow into our Obsession, because that will lead us to reject the wisdom of others. Episode 2, let's pick up in verse 11. It says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. Love to kill you in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. And when Saul's messenger, or sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Verse 15, then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed, that I might kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. 
Verse 17, and Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? What we see in episode two of the making of a monster is that you become closer to becoming a monster when you reject relationships. You reject relationships. What's happening in this text is Saul again is going after David and using his daughter Michael to help him and saying like we're going to kill him in the morning and Michael helps David by escaping. But even when the guards come in and they look down and they see she's pulled the Ferris Bueller on him and like the body is like it's not really David. I don't think she's giggling in the corner and going like oh I pulled a fast one on him. No, I think she's terrified because she knows her father is unsafe. He's not well. She even lies to him in verse 17 to protect David and to protect herself. And when you get into a situation where you are so driven in your desire to do something, not only do you reject wisdom, but you start rejecting relationships. That person that offered you a piece of wisdom that you ignored or you put off, now you're starting to think, well, I don't even know if I want to be friends with you because of what you keep saying, and you start rejecting wisdom and pushing them out and going like, like we just maybe we need to spend some time apart from each other. Now, that's not everyone. Some of you are in toxic relationships that you actually do need to spend some time away from each other, and that's a healthy thing. But are you pushing your friends away, your relationships away, because you don't like what they're saying that's actually true? That's a different thing altogether. And that's what we see Saul doing. He ought to be close with his daughter, but he's not. I had another friend reading on the psychology of dictators, like reading, you know, he's just <laughs> flipping through. And so he reads about this pattern that happens with dictators over the centuries. And it's pretty clear when you unwind it and you look from, like, how did this person get this way? And you start to work backward and kind of reverse engineer the patterns of behavior. Here's what you start to see, these five things. Number one, there's envy and fear that happens. Step two, there's paranoia that takes place. Step three, there's isolation. They start to shrink their circle of who they actually trust. Step four, they turn against their own. And step five, they do anything to keep power. This is Saul's pattern. As he continues to let sin and pride dominate his feelings, dominate his actions, he starts to look like this. Now, I know um, we don't have any dictators in the room, murderers in the room. I, I get that. And you might be going like, this is, an, this is extreme value. Like, but I think the question is, when you self-select people that only agree with you and your perspectives and your desires and your demands, you might just be a mini dictator. You might be a mini dictator in your home saying this is how it has to be, this is what's going to happen, and everybody needs to get in line. Maybe you're a mini-dictator at your work, and you're pocketing it under the language of leadership. This is what good leaders do. They take charge, and it goes this way, and you're not listening to anybody. You're rejecting relationships that are people that are good for you. We have to be honest with ourselves. Maybe you're a mini-dictator in your family, your extended family or your friend group, and you're going like, listen, they said some stuff that was hard, and I don't want to hear it. I don't want to receive it anymore. And you start to push them out of your life. And when people don't go along with what you want them to go along with, how do you see them? 
do they automatically start to become your enemies? You automatically start to go like, ah, I can't trust you. The wounds of a friend are faithful, says the Proverbs, right? Like we need to be paying attention to those things that are hard truths. And Saul's desire to sin has moved him deeper into a decision to sin, which has now moved into a deeper determination to sin as he seeks to kill David and rejects the relationships around him. First thing you do in heading toward making of a monster is you reject wisdom. The second is you reject relationship. Let's look at what we find in episode three. Let's pick up in verse 18, chapter 19. It says, now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah, and he told him all that Saul had done to him. And he said to Samuel, and went and lived in Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is in Naoth at Ramah. Then uh, Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they also prophesied. Verse 22, then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Saku. And he asked, where is Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth at Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went he prophesied until he came to Naoth at Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he prophesied before Samuel, and laid naked all the day and all the night. Thus says the Lord, is Saul also among the prophets? All right, episode three gets weird. <laughs> right? Has a mature rating. Um, we see all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, but what we ultimately see here is what we see in episode three is that when you become closer to becoming a monster, when you reject your maker, you reject wisdom, you reject relationships, and now you're rejecting your maker. We need to do a little bit of uh, a word understanding here in our text because uh, this word prophesy or prop prophesied all through this text. Uh, we might think in our context when we hear that word, when if you've grown up in church at all, you go, oh, when somebody prophesies, they kind of speak a word over you. Maybe they're telling you something, and, and this is how they're doing, and the Spirit of God is telling them, hey, I want to let you know about this thing in your life. But in this context, in the original language in the Hebrew, which, which the Old Testament is written in, this word prophesy, the actual word is navah. And what navah means is to come under the influence of a divine spirit. That's what it literally means. So Saul's angry. He's still going after David. He's trying to kill him. He sends this group. They come under the Spirit of God. He sends another group. They come under the Spirit of God. He sends a third group. They come under the Spirit of God. And Saul, like any gangster movie, is like, oh, I just got to do it myself. And so he goes himself. And what happens? He comes under the Spirit of God, almost like a Holy Spirit force field to say, listen, you're not in control of yourself anymore. And what happens as Saul is going after David, it's kind of like he's become an animal on the loose, right? He's ravenous and he's going out. And he's not only going to hurt other people, he's going to hurt himself. And so God, in his grace, in his love, says, no, you're not doing that. And he comes upon him in his spirit and he lays him flat on his back, even naked, to go like, this is not okay, Saul. And what happens when you 
reject your maker is that God will fully expose how powerless you really are and how powerful he really is. That's why I think he's laid there bare. He's going, so you think you have power. You don't have any real power. And the beautiful thing about this, like if Saul is a, is, is a crazy animal on the loose, what's the most humane, loving thing you can do to a crazy animal on the loose where you don't know really what's going on is you tranquilize that animal. And God is sending his spirit to stop Saul in his tracks, not only for the benefit of David and Samuel to protect them from dying, but also for the benefit of Saul. Do you see the heart of God in this? As he continues to pursue Saul, he lays him flat on his back and says, hold on a minute, Saul. This is not okay what you're doing. We need to take a break for a second. And God, honestly, if you, if you look at it from, from Saul's perspective, God keeps blocking Saul from his goal, doesn't he? His goal is to kill David, to maintain power, and God keeps putting these roadblocks in front of him, blocking him in his goal. I think it's worth us asking, where is God blocking you in your goal? That you might not even realize it's God actually blocking you. What are some of your goals? Maybe you have a goal of financial security. You go, man, I want that extra zero at the end of my decimal point. I want that next position. I need three months of emergency savings in the bank in case something happens. And you are just going after it. All of a sudden, you start getting obsessed with this idea of money being your security. Maybe some of you in the room have an obsession, and you wouldn't even call it that, but you're going like, man, I'm so tired of being single. Like, this is ridiculous. All my friends are getting married. I just want to be married. And for some reason, it's not working out for you. And some of you in the room, you are married. You're going, man, all I want is a family. All I want is to have kids, and that is your goal. And for some reason, it's not happening. And if we believe in the sovereignty or control of God, and we believe that God is good, and that we believe God loves you, and we believe all those things, there's some reason he's blocking you from those things. Now, are all those things, none of those things are bad. They're not bad in themselves at all, but when you, those things start to creep into the number one place in your heart, and those things start to be your king, those are the things you start to bend your knee towards, and your friends are going, ah, be careful of that, and relationships are going, ah, I don't think you should do that, and you're ignoring and pushing them away. Do you think God is going to give you what you want? He's not. Why? Because he loves you. Because he cares for you just like he loves Saul, just like he cares for Saul. And he's going, I know that if you get this thing you're after, you will become less human. And we don't see that from our perspective. We just get confused and frustrated at God. Why am I not getting this thing? <laughs> this thing is good. I want this thing. I don't understand why I'm not getting this thing. And God's going like, I, I see 10 years down the line. If you get that money, that you think will be your security, it's going to wreck you. If you get that spouse that you think is the one, I know what's going on. In 10 years, it is going to be a mess. I'm protecting you from blocking you of your goal. If you get that thing, those kids, you're going, all I need is kids. And then God's going like, hold on a minute. There's some work we have to do on you before you step into that role as a father. 
You guys know this if your parents in the room. You do things for your children in love because you love them and they don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them, but you're blocking them from their own harm. You're saying, it's because I love you. And God is doing the same thing with us. He's saying, I love you. I love you. Let me block you from yourself. And oftentimes we don't see it, we don't hear it. It doesn't make sense to us. This is what happens to Saul. And I think the invitation for us this morning is to, is to not uh, curse those things that are blocking our goals, but to embrace them. And go, God, what are you inviting me into? How do you want to change me while I'm waiting? How do, what, what are things I need to see that I'm not seeing? And you have a posture of humility and teachability, and Saul doesn't have any of that. His heart is hard, and he continues to go down that path of hardness. And he ends up flat on his back. Well, as we continue the story, let me sum up um, chapters 20 and 21 for us as we get to the, the season finale in chapter 22. What happens in chapter 21 or 20 and 21 is that there's another interaction with David and Jonathan, right? Another going like, John, David's got to be like, dude, last time we talked, you said your father wasn't going to kill me. And then the next scene, he throws a spear at me. What's the deal, bro? And he's like, dude, I know. I, I don't know what that's about. Let me go back to my father. Let me ask him again and find out what's really underneath the surface. So they have this interaction, Jonathan and Saul. And Jonathan just starts digging and asking questions. And finally, Saul comes unhinged. He's like, no, 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 I want to kill him. And so Jonathan goes back to David and is like, you need to leave. It's not helpful for you. And they part ways. And it's hard because they're really good friends. So David goes on the run in the midst of this. He goes to a city called Nob. And there's a priest there. This is, will be important in, as our season finale. There's a priest there named Ahimelech. And Ahimelech helps David. Because he's under the impression that this is Saul's guy. Why would I not help him? I'm going to help him. He helps them. And then David uh, goes to a couple other places. He has a couple run-ins with some different kings. And he ends up back in hiding. That's where we pick up our season finale in chapter 22, starting in verse 11. Let's look at it together. It says, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, son of Atab. And all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. So it's all the priests and all their families come to the king. Verse 12, and Saul said, hear now, son of Ahitab. And he asked, here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, that's David, and in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as... In this day, verse 14, then Ahimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and the captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Verse 16, and the king said, Surely uh, you shall die. Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Verse 18. 
Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Enamite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob in the city of priests, he put to the sword both man and woman, child, infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Last thing we see in the season finale is that when you reject wisdom, you reject relationships, you reject your maker, you become a monster. And that's what we see. That's what we see in this text. This, is, this scene is just a massacre. Killing God's people, God's priests. The priests were to represent God to the people. It's the ultimate rejection of God and what Saul is doing. And Saul comes to Ahimelech again, and he's going like, dude, why did you help David? And Ahimelech's like, what are you talking about? I thought David was your guy. Of course I helped him. And Saul, in his rage, in his desperation, says, kill him. And he turns to his guard, and even the guard's going like, Again, this is like every gangster movie you've ever seen, where the high guy is like, kill him, and the, the henchman's like, I don't know if that's a good idea. This is what happens in this scene. And so the, the, his guards, his own guards, Saul's own guards won't kill the priest, because they go, that's not a good look. And so he goes to Deog, this Edomite, and says, you kill him. And he slaughters him. All the priests and all their families. And if you recognize this language, this is from earlier, right? Like this is an undoing, even that Saul's a prophet, even that he would kill these people. God calls him to go after these other people. He doesn't do it. He rejects it. He keeps King Agag, if you remember from earlier, but now he's turned super dark and he's going after everyone. And again, this ultimate stance is an ultimate of rejecting God because he's killing priests. How does Saul get to this point? In his journey. I mean, we walk through his journey. God uses him in chapter 11 to rescue the nation from him. He does some good things, but his pride and his ego and his harm continue to be his downfall to get him to this place. It's a process. It's a process. Because if you watch any of those true crime shows, any of those true crime dramas, nobody starts where they end. They start as kind of normal people with maybe kind of flawed upbringing and background and then like they take steps towards their darkness and they start to reject wisdom they start to reject relationships they start to reject god and they turn into a monster and ultimately what is a monster a monster is somebody that's not human and the beauty of what god is telling us this morning is that he wants us to be fully human that's why he loves us that's why he pursues us and again, all of these crime dramas, they all end the same way, right? They all end with the person being dead or in prison. They all end in destruction. And this is a cautionary tale for us to go, okay, where are we in this situation? Even if we're not going to be the extreme of killing people, like where are we rejecting wisdom? Where are we rejecting relationships that we need to pay attention to? And again, the quote I read at the beginning from Dr. Meg Aroll, she says, as humans, we want to understand the darker side of our nature. True crime stories allow us to explore that in a safe way from a safe distance. And I think she might be right. I think the other reason we're attracted to some of these stories and some of these shows is because we can get caught up to potentially soothe the evil in us. We could go, well, I know I'm not like that. 
I know I'm not doing those extreme things, and so we can make ourselves feel better about who we are and where we're at, and we're not really paying attention to those small, subtle things in us, and it makes us feel better when we see somebody worse than us. But again, all of these people in these documentaries, they didn't start like monsters. It was a process for them. And the beauty in it, of the gospel and the invitation this morning of the good news of Jesus is that we have a king that desires us to not be like a monster, but to be more fully human. He's saying, listen, I'm putting these things in place to help you to become more human. This sin and this pattern that you're on of rejecting wisdom and rejecting relationships and rejecting me is actually going to make you less human. And I want you to be fully human. I want you to be flourishing in your life. I want you to be fully known. I want you to be in connection with other people. I don't want you to believe that sin. I don't want you to believe that lie. And I'm going to come to you and I'm going to pursue you to change. Because we can't fix the monster inside of us. We cannot do it on our own. We need outside help. We need God's spirit. We need Jesus to take over our lives and our actions so that we don't continue down this path. And even as we look at our text, as we wrap up this morning, man, Saul, man, he's a pursuing king. He's locked in on killing David. He's continuing to pursue him. But the God of the Bible is more of a pursuing God than Saul is. He's more of a per pursuing king. Can you see that? Can you see he's pursuing Saul, even in Saul's sin? He's sending him Jonathan. He's sending him Michael. He's sending him David. He's sending him the priest to go, look, you need to stop doing this, Saul. I love you. I care about you. I don't want you to end up like this. And that's beautiful for us because we can get locked in on pursuing things that are not helpful for us. And even in the midst of those desires, God is bigger than those desires. His pursuit is bigger than our own pursuits. And in his love, he will continue to come after you. And we see that in the most beautiful picture of Jesus, the most pursuing king. That even in the midst of our darkness of our own hearts, even in the midst of our monster attitude and behavior, he still loves us and still pursues us and still gives us a way to know who God is through the sacrifice of Jesus, his only son. And we can accept that. We can change. That's good news for us this morning. We need to be reminded of that. So as we leave this morning, I just hope you're challenged in thinking like, where am I rejecting wisdom? Where am I rejecting relationships? Where am I rejecting God's voice in my life? And how do I turn from that rejection to acceptance? That's the best way to live. It really is. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's confusing. You don't understand, but you're going, okay, God, like I trust you more than I trust myself. Let's be those type of people this morning. Let's pray. Father, we so need you in the midst of our crazy stories and even the crazy story of Saul. Thanks that you love us. Thanks that you chase us. Thanks that you pursue us just like you pursued Saul in this text. Let us not be hard of heart, but God, help us have a soft heart. Help us turn back to you even in a step of faith to say, God, I I'm, I'm tired of going my own way. I'm tired of rejecting these things that potentially could make me a monster. Would you help us? Would you help me 
no one to turn, no one to embrace these things, and no one to trust you to work in and through me. God, we pray that you would help us do it. Thanks, Jesus, that you sent, uh, Father, that you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue us from ourselves. Make it real to us this morning. We ask it in your name. Amen.